Yes, hello folks, welcome to the Global Football Show. I'm your host as always, Phil Brown, and delighted to be joined here with Zach. The last time we recorded, Zach, I, it was on the day that I was that I caught COVID. And so, um, and I'm, st- honestly, it's been two weeks, and I am still really sick with this thing. I do not recommend anyone getting it. And uh, I got over the worst symptoms, but now I'm still dealing with unbelievable fatigue and congestion and... Um, it's just it, it. I don't recommend anyone getting this. They still have breathing problems. It's it's absolutely shit. So uh, how you doing, man? I'm doing very well, Phil. Good to see you're doing fairly better. Yes. Uh, yeah. COVID. It's it's definitely not fun. So hopefully, no. Nope. You're you're done with that for the time being. Yes, <laughs> I hope so because um, <clears throat> honestly, it's uh, I, I it's the first time I ever caught it, and I thought to myself. Um, yeah. I thought I had tiger blood or something that I would never catch it. <laughs> and then I catch it and it absolutely kicked my ass. Nonetheless, some of this podcast will be a little painful for me because one of the things we're going to highlight, of course, is the freak of nature that is early in Holland. And yeah. um, I can't remember anything like this. And I've seen so many greats. I've seen, you know, I remember Ronaldo, of course, uh, at his prank, or, you know, Messi, of course, they were geniuses for different reasons. And we've got this number nine in allegedly the most competitive league in the world, making an absolute mockery of it. And and you're reaching, we'll, we'll, we'll try to accentuate his genius and what we're looking at here and, and what we could be looking at over the next... 10 years with Holland. We'll talk about, of course, juxtaposed with that, the decline of Ronaldo. Um, I know you've done a piece on this, sack, and of course you're exceptionally well-versed in Portuguese football about Ronaldo's international contributions. Um, I think it's almost certain he leaves Manchester United in January, and I think that's the right thing to do. And I actually agreed with Ten Hag at the weekend about spurring him the ignominy of bringing him on in a game where United were 4-0 down. Um, and suffering that embarrassment. Uh, I, I actually agree with Ten Hag and what he did. Uh, we'll talk about the Qatar human rights issue uh, with the Danish, of course, Hummel coming out and saying that um, they're blacking out the Danish shirt. We'll ask, I'll ask you, Zach, if some of this is virtue signaling or if some of this really is a commitment to repudiating the awful human rights situation. And if we get time, we'll talk about the regulatory capture essentially of the UEFA Nations League and what that means for football because I think what they've basically done is they've looked at friendlies, saw too many friendlies in the international calendar and said we need to monetize these friendlies by putting this into a competition. Um, Kevin De Bruyne said to start this UEFA Nations League, he didn't want to play in it because they were glorified friendlies. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that. But first of all, my friend, how you doing? Doing very well, Phil. Got a lot to discuss. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, only a few weeks left until the World Cup, but Incredible. still got a ton of stuff to discuss with regards uh, to club football. So yeah, I'm very excited for today's episode, for sure. We'll start with Erling Haaland, Zach. <clears throat> um, obviously, very painful weekend for me. Um, not unexpected, I might add. Um, I obviously watched Haaland start to the Premier League. And you take my knitted hat off for a second and just appreciate what, what what you're looking at. And I've seen some great number nines over my time, you know, and I, I, that were considered, you know, sensational. 
Well, I'm not sure I've ever seen anything quite like Erling Holland in the, the way he started the season and the fact that he is essentially unplayable. Yeah. Look, I mean, I remember when I was first watching Holland, um, I think it was in, it may have been in the 2019 U21 Euros, U20 Euros, U20 World Cup, excuse me, when he scored a ridiculous amount of goals in a single game. Uh, from there, he went on and became, became a star for himself uh, at Red Bull Salzburg, earned a move to Borussia Dortmund, going from the Austrian Bundesliga to the German Bundesliga. One thing about Holland, it seems like every single move of his career has been perfectly uh, plotted out. You know, I remember seeing this uh, in, in, I think, 2019 or 2020 when Holland... Uh, changed his last name to be more anglicized to to be you know better for marketing uh he's just kind of always had a how do i say this a scientific uh feel to it Uh, you know someone who just is has just calculated every move um whether that's on the pitch or off it so look i i think that for for me with holland you know, I had a bit of a similar feeling to, for example, Kylian Mbappe a few years ago. Like, this kid is in another stratosphere. We should not be comparing him with other uh, very good young center forwards like Viktor Osimhen, Dusan Vlahovic, Darwin Nunez. We should be comparing him with the best players in the world because right now, I think that he is genuinely staking a case um, to be the best, to being the best uh, player in world football. And, you know, we haven't really thought of, perhaps we, we haven't really considered that possibility because he's so young, because he's a center forward, and perhaps we haven't seen a center forward be the best player in football for, for a, a while. Um, as well as he is Norwegian, you know, he's not from a sexy country. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not in a country that, that's going to be playing in the World Cup. But he has not only taken the Premier League by storm, he's taken the Champions League by storm. You know, his <laughs> record in Europe's top competition uh, is a, in a, an absolute joke. And, of course, he's taking uh, the English top flight by storm. Three consecutive hat-tricks, uh, you know, taken eight games to score three hat-tricks in the Premier League. It's just absolutely insane what he can do with the football. Uh, he's a physical beast, but he's also just so incredible at finding not only getting those shall we say uh less um attractive goals you know the tap-ins the play the those goals where frankly city were not scoring a lot of them you know you'd find a lot of those crosses going wayward uh a lot of those cutbacks you know not having the man and you just thought if if they only had a genuine center forward to finish them off and we've seen that Holland's adding a genuine center forward has just given them uh, another dimension. And I think that, you know, we are seeing the impact of that in, in the English top fight, but I think we're really going to see the impact of that in the Champions League. Having uh, a player who, frankly, you know, is, is, is a constant menace for defenders, a player who's going to create so much space for and time for his other attacking teammates, just on how much uh, attention he commands... For me, he has everything it takes to be uh, not only the best player in the world, but I think probably the best signing of the summer. Um, and another thing I will say is that uh, as good as Holland is, I'm also not sure we would be seeing this Holland 
uh, in, for example, Manchester United, Chelsea, Liverpool. I think that City and Holland truly is the perfect fit in many in many ways. One, you know, it you've almost got a bit of uh, you know a bit of vengeance there. I know that you know going back what eighteen years uh, ago when uh, Roy Kane. Uh, gave Alf in Holland that pretty bad injury. Uh, you know, so many years later, Holland comes back, scores a hat trick and two assists uh, to humiliate them. I think that, you know, he's almost out there for revenge. And he's out there uh, to play under arguably the best manager in world football and a manager who just knows uh, how to feed uh, his attackers with these uh, consistent chances and you give Holland those chances he's going to lap them up um, he's been absolutely fantastic so far and yeah I think that this is definitely a match made in heaven Erling Holland and Manchester City I also feel like Holland you know it like I said everything has been really calculated uh, in his career going from Norway to Austria to Germany and while there were so many teams competing for his signature, um, I kind of felt like the only option for him was the Premier League, right? Because he wants to be in the most competitive league in football. He doesn't want any easy games. He wants to prove it. Uh, and that's what we are seeing right now from him. I would agree with 99.9% that without except one, with one exception, I'll explain that in a minute. <clears throat> You bring up a lot of important points here yeah. that um, I completely agree with in the sense that he is doing this no matter where you put him. In international right. football, Champions League, Premier League, there is nobody in world football right now that's been able to find a way to stop this yeah. guy. And I'm looking at... The only thing I would disagree with you on is I still think Holland would do Hey. I, think we got this, I think we got disconnected there. Um, yeah. Can you hear me? Sorry. I'll, I'll, yeah, sorry. Um, I, we got disconnected in the stream there, so this will probably come out in the recording. So my apologies to those listening to the podcast, because um, <clears throat> it's going to be a nightmare to edit this out. But I'll finish up what I was saying now. I'm not sure what happened. Uh, we got kicked out of the stream. Um, as I said, he's doing this at all levels of football, Zach. There's yeah. nobody in world football that's come up with a way to combat Erling Holland to take him out of the game. There's almost no footballer. I mean, look, Ronaldo, Messi are two of the exceptions where in their prime, there was no way you could come up with a defensive strategy to take them out of the game. Because just sometimes people are right. so good that there's no, there's no antidote. And I feel that that's where we are with Holland. I don't think you, you were there with Mbappe. I think Mbappe, mm -hmm. there is ways to take him out of the game. But right now, there's no way to take Erling Holland out of a game. I think Erling Holland yeah. scores 30, 35 goals for no matter who he plays for. For yeah. someone like City, 
He, he's a, he has the potential to score 50-plus goals. I mean, the numbers that he's putting up right now, Zach, are so unique in world football, in the history of world football, of all the history of celebrated strikers. I mean, it's it, 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 he's almost like something that was created out of MIT, where he is this you know, AI freak of nature, where you're going high on earth, do the world's top defenders stop this guy? And and what he's also doing now, and you can see this, is he, he's got defenders beating the tunnel. They are afraid going into that game where they're looking, you know, it's, it feels inevitable that Holland's going to score. I mean, right. I watched United and City at the weekend. United were on the back foot from the first kickoff, and you could tell this sense of danger and worry and nervousness around their defending because you can't switch off for a second with Holland. And I'm looking at him going, he's young. The only thing, in my opinion, that can hold him back is injuries. But if this guy stays fit, I mean, we could be talking about two different leagues here. We could be talking about the league that Manchester City is going to walk and then everybody else. Yeah, and look, I mean, Erling Holland. I want to go back to this. Um, you know, he has been doing this not just in not you know not just for Manchester City, but also for Norway, becoming a you know a genuine goal threat for them. I'm really interested to see if he can lead them to a major tournament, though, because they have a lot of talent, mm-hmm. and you feel like they've been kind of a, a fallen giant. Um, Erling Haaland. 26 goals in 21 Champions League appearances. For uh, for reference, the only two players who have surpassed 100 goals, Lionel Messi, 126 goals from 158. Cristiano Ronaldo, 140 from 183. I got to say, I think there's a very good chance that Haaland ends up surpassing both of them. And, you know, as far as Champions League goals go, but also I think that, you know, he's on track to become one of the greatest players of all time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we've been talking about for the past 15 years, oh, nobody's ever going to come close to Cristiano, nobody's ever going to come close, close to Messi. And, you know, while that may be uh, in, the, in their own respective uh, regards as, as players, fact is, I think that the new generation of footballers, they are, um, they are you know, playing with better technology than before yes. they are perhaps <clears throat> no not doubt. not having as much uh in the way of uh you know off the field incidents right where or or even you know poor diet you know they everything mm. with this new generation of footballers is more clued in than it's ever been before so i think that you have to consider that as a genuine possibility that uh holland is going to you know end up becoming you know, one of, if not the greatest player of all time. He, that is just how good he is. He is unstoppable right now, 22 years of age, and, you know, doing this in the toughest competitions in world football. It's absolutely insane. Um, and, yeah, I I will concede, I, I think that he would score a decent amount of goals for Chelsea or United, but uh, would he score as much as he is at City, I'm not. I'm probably not, not sure. because he's so, ob- yeah, but, right. but he's still putting up, in my opinion, 30, 35 goals for. I mean, the, the, yeah, his chance conversion ratio, and and he also mentioned something <clears throat> in the, in in the, um, 
a description of Holland that I think is important, that right. he scores a lot of toppings. That to the untrained eye, looks like you know, you know he he's he's you know poaching or just but the movement it, it, you have to understand his anticipation his movement right. being in the right place at the right time to know when that ball's going to drop that is something that's almost uncoachable that's an instinct that comes from experience that comes from reputation and he has that so young i also think that um it's not the best thing in the world to compare different eras because yes. as you quite rightly said 30 years from now players are going to have benefits of sports science that the current players don't have that will give them a massive advantage and who knows you know some emergence with, with ai singularity who knows there may be some things down the line crispr with gene editing who knows that will give these players a massive advantage over the current the our, our current athletes so the comparison would be unfair because in this current era all you have to do is be better than your rival it ha you don't. It's not you know. You're not being asked to be better than a player thirty years from now. You know, just like I don't think it's helpful to compare Johan Cruyff and George Best and you know, Pelle era with Messi and everything because there's. I mean, take a look at the fields they're playing on. Take a look at the rules. They're totally different. Take, and and as you quite rightly said, a lot of their off the field habits. No one really cared. I mean, right. if you watch documentaries of players from the eighties, they were being put on diets of Guinness to make them stronger, <laughs> which is just insane, right? And that right. that's a fact. And and so you're going, you know, is it really fair? You know, yeah. and so I think um, with Erling Holland, the other thing that makes him unique to me, Zach, is he is a dying breed. There are so few number nines, target men, number nines like that, in world football anymore. And City have got a, this young kid that, you know, he's got 10, 15 years easy at the, at the top. And to me, he's probably the most valuable player in world football right now. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I also think it's it is very interesting how... You know, we've seen for the past, what, 10 years or so, so many, um, so many pep teams have involved a non-traditional center forward, right? We've yeah. seen that with Lionel Messi. Um, even, when, even when Barcelona had David Villa, he was often played on the flanks. Um, you know, we've seen Zlatan Ibrahimovic, perhaps the closest to a traditional number nine, not have that much success. Um, under Pep Guardiola at Barcelona, Samuel Eto'o, you know, one of the rare examples, but you look at the other options, uh, Sergio Aguero, you know, far from a traditional number nine, as well as the past few years, we've seen likes of Kevin De Bruyne, Phil Foden operating in a false nine role. Now you've got this, you know, kind of a more of a traditional old-fashioned center forward, but who just gives you so much more, right? I think he's really unlike any center forward we've ever seen. And yeah, you mentioned it. He gets into these fantastic goal-scoring positions. He doesn't have an issue with, you know, scoring uh, less sexy goals. He All mm -hmm. he cares about is scoring goals. Um, and I just think the way, one, it's one thing to have incredible speed and physical power, which Halan does. It's another thing to be able to use your body and manipulate it. I think we saw that, with, with the goal against Dortmund, being able to twist and turn his muscles in that way. And uh, one of the goals um, against Manchester United where almost like 
he uh, it's almost like one of those umbrella things, right? Where you where you press the button of the umbrella and it just pops mm-hmm. out. And it seemed like he was doing that same thing with his leg. You know, his, his mm-hmm. leg was in one place and then he just completely stretched it to the other way to get on the back of uh, of Kevin De Bruyne's assist. And it's just like one of those things where I, I think to myself, is there a single center forward? Is there a single player in football who's capable of doing that? You know, not only just having the the legs long enough to get on the end of that cross, but to be able to do that, I'm just not sure there is. Uh, he's a freak of nature, you know, physically, athletically. He's just insane. And yeah, like I said, I don't think you can compare him to other young prospects, right? Like, yeah. um, you know, and, and there are so many good prospects like Osimen, Darwin, uh, so on and so forth. But uh, he's already one of the best center forwards in world football alongside Lewandowski, Benzema, Kane. And yeah, I definitely think he is uh, pr- he's probably the most valuable player in world football right now. I think it's between him and Kylian Mbappe. Um, and I do think that is going to be the next great rivalry in football after Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi. Um, but I don't know. I think that, yeah, I think there's an argument to be made that he's, he's playing like the best player in world football right now. I think probably uh, in terms of his branding, it would help him to play in the World Cup, obviously, and raise his profile. But I actually think on a personal level, it's going to help him not playing at the World Cup because he's going right. to get that time off and to rest his body and to recover. And I think um, for him, it's probably a benefit to get uh, that time yeah. off in the middle of the season. Switching our attention over to uh, a star in decline, Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, you said something over the weekend which I thought was incredible. Ronaldo hasn't scored in seven of Portugal's last eight games. Is that correct? Did I get that stat right? Uh, no, it's actually eight out of his last nine. Oh, eight out of his last nine, correct. Uh, and obviously, he is an icon. And um, he's very, very difficult to leave out when he's fit. And um, obviously, United have this problem. Um, but we are, of course, seeing a guy in decline. A guy who is uh, will go down, in my opinion, is easily one of the top three players ever to have played the game. Right. But the one thing about getting old, and I'm here to tell you this, <laughs> is whilst you may get old physically, you don't get old mentally. And you still feel in your head that you're exactly like you were 21, 22. <laughs> and so Cristiano Ronaldo will still feel that he's one of the best players in the world in his head. And we'll expect to be treated as such, but that's not the reality that we see on the pitch. The question now for Portugal is, is there a way to leave Cristiano Ronaldo out and for it to not cause a problem at the World Cup? And should they do that? I think that they should, Phil. Look, I mean, the fact is Cristiano Ronaldo is a player in decline. He has done so well over the past few years to, you know, hold off uh, the effects of father time. But at the end of the day, time waits for no man. And Ronaldo at, what, 37, he just simply is not the player he once was. I know that some people, you know, they look at the numbers, they look at the stats to say otherwise. But the fact is, uh, you know, while Ronaldo did score a decent amount of goals last season, a lot of them were against uh, poor opponents. A lot of them were penalties. 
And a lot of them, frankly, it just came in uh, in spurts. You know, he was not consistent. He had as many anonymous performances, uh, if not more, than performances where, where he really stepped up and uh, led United to victory. So, look, frankly, he is just not good enough to start for Portugal. When you look at the amount of players that they have at their disposal, uh, you look at the amount of attacking options, I personally don't think he's he is good enough to be even in the 26-man squad. I would still include him because of his leadership um, as, as well as his, you know, his experience. But the fact is, he I don't see him as a better player than Portugal's other options. And uh, people, you know, they, they will say, oh, Portugal, without Cristiano Ronaldo, they're nothing. Well, guess what? Portugal have won two major trophies uh, for the first time ever. And the, both of those happened in the past few years. Uh, Portugal won the 2016 Euros with the final uh, coming with Cristiano Ronaldo on the bench for the majority of the final two games. Okay. And look, fair enough. He played, you know, an important role with shouting directions and motivating his teammates, right? And that's why I said I think that he should still be in the squad because of his leadership. Um, the 2019 Nations League uh, was won with Ronaldo not even being in the squad. So, and I, and I mean, you look at so many of Portugal's best performances over the past few years, so many of them have come with either Ronaldo not in the squad uh, or Ronaldo not playing a big part, right? We saw that in the recent match against uh, Czech Republic, Portugal winning 4 nothing, almost in spite of Ronaldo. I mean, he conceded a penalty, a blatant stonewall penalty that Czech Republic did not convert. Um, but yeah, it was almost winning in spite of him. And we saw that, I think, so many times over the past few years. Portugal, it's almost like they play worse because of Cristiano, because so many times they're playing for Cristiano and not for the team. They're trying to uh, send up aimless, send up a ton of you know crosses into the area uh, instead of passing it around. You know, trying to find Cristiano Ronaldo instead of just trying to find the best route to goal. Um, so I do think that in many ways his gravity has has made uh, them play worse, and we've seen that with a lot of. With not just Portugal, but with other teams as well. Um, and United are, frankly, a good example. Um, Cristiano, when when you are playing uh, a counter-attacking game plan, as we saw for Portugal against Spain, you know, trying to hit on the break, frankly, playing with Cristiano, it's almost like playing with 10 men because he doesn't do any work off the ball. He can't press. And, frankly, he's slow. He's a slow player now. Uh, he's constantly, you know, unable to get back onside, uh, really sloppy in possession, just missing a ton of easy chances. And yeah, I, I do not think he should be starting at all. I think that, uh, that he will start just because of his, obviously him, you know, being as much of a commercial boon in terms of selling shirts, in terms of giving Portugal popularity. I think that's what it comes down to, you know, in terms of uh, his marketability. But Let me ask you this. As a player, he should not be starting. So here's the thing. So yeah. United are saying he can leave in January. And he's going to face the exact same problem in January that he faced in the summer. That, right. you know, that there's very few clubs are going to want to take him. 
for all the reasons you outlined. Let's say, let's play that. Let's just uh, create a hypothetical here. Let's say they go to the World Cup. Portugal wins the World Cup. That would be Ronaldo's swan song. Does it make sense for him to walk off the sunset and retire after that and go, you know what, I'm not going to go through the ignominy of trying to find a club in January um, yeah. for a, a football icon. Um, I'm just going to, you know, I've not, I've, I've got nothing left to prove. I've won the Euros, I've won the World Cup, I've won Champions Leagues, I've won La Liga, Premier Leagues, Serie A, everything. What really is there for Ronaldo to continue to do after that? Do you think that the Messi record continues to... Um, be a carrot and Santa for him, or do you think that maybe in his head that would be the time to call it quits? Which which uh, which Messi record are you referring to? Well, just the Champions League record and right. make sure that uh, he does he doesn't get caught in goals and um, I think Messi will, will will surpass him anyway because he's younger yeah. and you know he's still got a couple of years there. But clearly, that's a factor for Ronaldo. Right. Clearly, it is. Yeah, I mean, Ronaldo is one of the greatest players in Champions League history. Obviously, the cha- all-time Champions League goal scorer. But I definitely don't think it was a coincidence that Ronaldo, trying to market himself to any interested Champions League team, and pretty much everywhere you'd turn, it was, oh, we have tremendous respect for Ronaldo, but mm-hmm. we're not interested in him. We saw that with Chelsea, Bayern, Napoli, so many teams. Um and yeah, I think it really just shows you where Ronaldo is right now. He is not as good as he thinks he is. He's not as good as his wages demand. And frankly, he's not even good enough to be starting for Manchester United or Portugal right now. Um, I do think, though, I, I, I don't think that his ego would allow him to retire. I think that he still wants to play Champions League football. He still wants to play in the top of Europe. Um, so I, that's why I don't see him going to MLS or the Middle East. Um, I, I think, I, I do think that Portugal, it, it's always an option, you know, that, that door is probably always going to be open. Um, so I could potentially see him making a move to sporting in, next summer. I, my biggest concern though is, is Ruben Amorim going to sanction it? Because that was really the story this summer. Um, Ruben Amorim did not want to bring in Ronaldo to sporting. Uh, because of, you know, what we've just talked about, mm-hmm. right? Kind of sporting want to focus on younger players. Ronaldo almost has a larger-than-life uh, celebrity appeal to him. And uh, I, I, I think that in many ways he, he has the potential to, uh, to, to destroy that blueprint. So if Amorim were to leave... Sporting and he and he's his contract is set to expire in 2024. I know there's been talk of you know Wolves interested in him to sign Lodge. Um, mm-hmm. If if I'm wanting more to leave, I could see Sporting making a move for Ronaldo in 2023. But I look at the other European teams and yeah, I'm struggling to think of what teams would run would run Ronaldo because the fact is he just is not a top level footballer anymore. Would you know, you... he is not capable of starting for for a lot of these Champions League teams. You think Sporting would go after him as a manager? Um I don't I, I don't think so. I I also don't know if Ronaldo would want to go into management. Um, you know, especially I think that I mean obviously I'm not, I'm not friends with Ronaldo, but uh 
I, w- I would think that he would probably just be more interested in uh, looking after his son's emerging footballing career, you know, spending time with his family, <clears throat> using his commercial weight to, uh, you know, continue with his endorsement deals and stuff. Yeah, I'm not too sure he'd be keen on going into management, but you never know. Um, well, I think there's two things on this. Yeah. If you looked at the um, the, uh, the, the UEFA final, of course, yeah. 2016, and he was essentially the de facto manager on the sideline, um, as we as we, as we remember, and some people were saying it was disrespectful to Fernando Sanchez. Um and it was it was uh, it was interesting to see how uh, he. I don't know if that was Ronaldo's ego wanting to remain front and center of any potential victory, or whether it was symbolic of you know ideas that he has in his head. But I think there's other thing that was interested on this. Duncan Castles, who of course is quite close to Chesterfoote and and, and um, George Mendes, uh, who will know exactly what their intentions are, thinks that uh, according to them, Ronaldo has three to four years left still at the top. I would dispute that, but that gives you an idea of what is going on in Ronaldo's head that he thinks right. I can still play until I'm 40 um, at the very highest level um, I, I, I don't know about that but um, yeah I think uh, for Ronaldo for a guy with that type of ego Zach yeah. I think he would find it hard to drift off into the peripheral and, and you know and, and Live through vicariously through his son. I, I think he's right. going to need to stay in some type of job that keeps him front and center. And of course, then the question comes: Does a guy with that type of personality make a good manager? I don't know. Um, and Ronaldo, let's not forget. I mean, he's not just comparing himself to other uh, footballers. He's comparing himself to other sportsmen. You know, he considers mm-hmm. himself. And right. I, I well, that's a good himself, point. Yeah, because he's been I mean, and stuff. Yeah, right. Exactly. I was just going to mention. I mean, we saw that famous embrace between Cristiano and Tom Brady. Um, and you know, Tom Brady is still playing at forty-five years old, right? Yeah. Uh, Cristiano, I think he definitely wants to try to keep on going until forty. You know, so I mean, he's comparing himself with Tom Brady, LeBron James, all of these legendary sportsmen. And yeah, I'm not sure he feels like he wants to hang it up, especially after grabbing 18 goals for United. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, he can't, you know, he cannot force a team to buy him. So I just don't think, yeah, I don't see any Champions League teams uh, taking a shot on him. Let's uh, move on and talk about the um, Pendant World Cup, of course. Not without controversy and rightfully so. Mm. Uh, We're seeing more and more... People come out being vocally critical of, of course, the indefensible human rights issue um, that, uh, quite frankly, has put me off and, and my appetite towards this World Cup. I can't remember a World Cup where I've been so indifferent to the entire tournament, um, where I feel that nothing is, it's so grotesque in its corruption, it's so grotesque. In, in, in its lack of morality. It's so grotesque to me that this is an event that's taken place solely for the purpose of profit. Mm-hmm. And human beings, one human being dying as a result of labor conditions or working conditions or lack of human rights and constructing any of these stadiums is, is too many. And it's completely indefensible for FIFA to claim anything other than that. Every reputable human rights organization 
has come out and slaughtered the Qatari uh, officials. Just last week, we had a situation where a British guy who worked for Qatar, uh, Qatari Airlines, I believe it was, um, <clears throat> wanted to take a job in Saudi Arabia, was not allowed to leave, uh, and ended up dead in Qatari mm. police custody. Um, we have the ridiculous situation where a lot of hotels aren't even going to show the game on TV over there. Right. Uh, I would ask myself as a fan, why would I even go? What 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 really is in it for me? It, 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 you know the ridiculous disruption to the football calendar, you know, which is the least of our worries, but the completely indefensible human rights violations. What's it worth, Zach? It's a football tournament, right. but is, the, what's happened to these Nepalese workers and how they've been so badly let down by the football authorities? Yeah is so grotesque to me, it's so offensive to me, that I can't get myself even remotely interested. And in, I'm not a massive fan of international football, as it happens. Um, I don't like jingoism. I don't like a lot of the stuff that goes along with it. Yeah. But um, I, I have to be honest, this is maybe a bridge too far. I don't know. I, I just, I can't, I can't, I, 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 I'm actually offended at the World Cup, to be honest. Yeah. Look, it's an absolute disgrace. I I think I, I think that I, I will definitely be interested in the World Cup because and, and while that may sound hypocritical, I'm still a football fan. I'm sure, no, I understand that. The biggest sporting competition in the world. But this this entire tournament, it's an absolute disgrace. Um so I think I'm I'm going to feel I know I know a lot of Arsenal fans felt this way in the North London Derby when uh, Thomas Partey scored. So, you know, wanting to support your team, but also not wanting to support someone who's been accused of so many credible allegations. Mm -hmm. um, it's a similar vibe, obviously not the same situation, but I think a similar vibe here, because obviously the World Cup is the World Cup, but this World Cup should never have been even close to taking place. Uh, the only reason it is taking place is because of pure corruption mm -hmm. and there are few national bodies that are more uh corrupt than fifa um so they've sold the rights to an incredibly rich incredibly backward country who does not care about human rights does not care about uh the rights of minorities and lgbt and it was basically said that it doesn't matter how many migrant workers die making these stadiums fact is we need to we need to get people to this tournament we need to boost our declining tourism numbers we need to do everything we can because at the end of the day football really only cares about money the people the powers that be uh they are only interested in making as much money as possible and so yeah it's a disgrace that this tournament is going to be uh going on well here's the thing zach right it's a disgrace and there's no question about that <clears throat> But there's a lot of people that I feel deserve enormous criticism over this, right? So <clears throat> when we have a situation where uh, an athlete says something um, racist or what have you, um, you know, anything that's prejudiced or you know, does something, breaks the law, they're dropped by sponsors, right? Yet these are the same sponsors 
who've lost their moral compass when it comes to the World Cup. This is the same people that are willing to sponsor an organisation that has... And, and one thing we knew about those bids in 2010 is the corruption was ubiquitous. It wasn't just uh, Qatar. You know, the, the English uh, bid was corrupt. The, the, lots of the bids were corrupt. U.S., all of that. They were all trying to, you know, to get with their gifts to Jack Warner and all these things that were going on behind the scenes that were trying to buy and curry favour because of the culture that was created because this was how you got business done at FIFA. So, you know, it's, uh, there's a lot of people who are culpable in this, not just the Qataris, may, I might add, and I completely right. understand the whataboutery where people are going to say, well, what about, you know, the, the social problems in the US? What about their, you know, foreign policies? What about, and I, and I get that. And, and so I totally understand that. Uh, and, uh, and there's a fair point to be made there. <clears throat> but um, that doesn't detract from the fact that Qatar, you know, they don't get to claim innocence because there's other people guilty too. Um, and 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 not everything is completely analogous. So there are some there are fundamental differences, um, and and so I'm looking at this and going, the virtue signaling of companies and people does bother me at times because right. we have a situation where um, Hummel, for example, yes. you know we're we're, we're going to black out the shirt. You know why don't you just boycott the tournament altogether? Because to me, when you'd make an advertisement that says, we're going to black out a shirt in protest, that's almost an advertisement to buy the shirt. Yes. What, what really are you doing here? What really is it costing you to make the social stand? We've got um, national teams saying we're going to wear an LGBTQ armband. Why don't you just boycott the tournament? Why don't you just right. not go? You know, these are symbols of support, but they're not really support. Yeah. It costs you nothing to do that. What would, what, if you have a legitimate, if you, you, you suffer legitimate injury and you suffer legitimate loss to support someone, then I give you credibility. But to me, it's like, here we are again, football trying to be seen to be doing the right thing rather than actually doing the right thing. Because if big countries refused to play in this tournament things would have changed because the tail wags the dog this is about who moves makes the money i hate to use this example yeah. but but um, forgive me for i promise this will be the last time i use it but when terry henry scored in the park de france to knock out on that one of the things that happened in that uh <clears throat> world cup playoff was right the team that finished with the most points in that playoff in the group got home advantage last. So Ireland finished with more points than what France did. Bless you. Yet didn't get home advantage last. FIFA changed that to benefit France because France is a bigger market, it's the biggest television market, and they were, of course, delighted with the outcome, and, and John Delaney took a payoff from FIFA to shut up and go away, which was pennies compared to what they would have gotten had they have qualified. And they may not have qualified anyway, but the point is, the tables are stacked towards the big countries getting there. Right? That's why they've increased how many teams go to the tournament, all that. Because of their big television markets. I understand that. So if they would have turned around and boycott the tournament, things would have changed immediately. Because there is no tournament without them. But to me, when you're making these empty gestures, we're going to black out our shirt. That's basically an advertisement to buy your shirt. 
We're going to wear an armband. Well, big deal. We're going to take a knee. Big deal. This is performative. Right. What is it actually doing to change attitudes to change, to to better the situations of people you're allegedly supporting? Right. Look, Phil. I mean, there is a fairly new term uh, that is called slacktivism, and it mm. basically means you know supporting a political or social cause, uh, such as you know signing petitions or uh, liking a tweet uh, with with very little effort or commitment and essentially it is just performative um and i think we're seeing a huge increase of that with these massive corporations mm-hmm. and footballing bodies such as the fa right who will you know have rainbow armbands uh but will agree to you know to to do business with anti-lgbt companies right. or uh, countries and i think that look while while the humble uh thing was perhaps had good intentions uh yeah at the end of the day it just comes out a bit hollow because look one you are you are you know still you are still uh by way of providing these shirts you are still uh supporting the tournament you are also giving uh you know a a way for i guess people who uh people who want to show their opposition to the tournament, but, you know, also uh, are going to watch it, um, a a way to do that by buying these shirts, right? And, yeah, with regards to this one, look, I think that Hummel and Denmark, their their history together is is beautiful, but the fact is, let's, let's look at the facts. It's not a blank shirt. Okay, the Hummel logo is still there. So it would be, it would have been one thing, if Hummel had supplied uh, the shirts and had, mm-hmm. you know, uh, had, had blanked out their logo, okay? But that's not what they did, okay? They still have logo. Another thing is uh, Hummel has drawn criticism already for manufacturing their shirts in China, uh, which is over 30% of its apparel, Pakistan, Bangladesh. All of these countries have, you know, human rights and labor uh, rights that have been constantly ignored, uh, similarly to Qatar. So how are you going to, uh, how, you know, how are you going to try to take this stand against the World Cup and yet do the same thing? You know, it may be whataboutism, but it's it's a genuine concern. What are your values as yeah. a company? Are your values just we want to try to uh, create this masquerade of this create this facade of being opposed to a tournament or do we actually genuinely stand up for human rights and i think we saw that the answer with hubble Zach, whenever whenever uh, i see something like this and i i i almost feel like the protest is as much about advertising um than anything else. I mean, you brought up something there earlier about Thomas Partey. And this is a perfect example of this. It's almost like that Thomas Partey thing didn't happen. And then we get the pathetic spangles cop out of, well, we can't say anything because we don't want to jeopardize the investigation. Well, you don't have to assume guilt. You don't have to say anything with prejudice, the investigation, but you can still talk about it and still talk about how morally wrong it is that this guy's still playing football. 
that this guy's still scoring goals. His goal at the weekend, I was it made me nauseous to listen to the to, to listen to the the uh, the commentary surrounding it, where they lavished him with praise, beautiful finish, fantastic. What? Right. Are you? Was it an alternative universe that I woke up where he was credibly accused of this? And I'm sitting there and going, it's almost like it didn't happen. Meanwhile, these are the same people that if the story's big enough, they'll come out and say, I'm vehemently against this. Just because, again, it's about seeing to be doing the right thing. I have a friend of mine who raises money for veterans. And he he told me one of the reasons why we collect on public places like the airport and what have you is because we realize that a lot of public donations are performative. Right. Look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm supporting the troops. But they don't make those donations in private. When it comes down to sitting at the house on a Friday night and saying, here, make the same donation online to a veterans organization. No. Why? There's no one here to to pat me in the back. This is about showing other people what a great guy I am. But when it right. comes down to actually making legitimate sacrifices where there's no social reward for being this way, then all of a sudden that moral compass isn't quite as calibrated. If a player came out and turned around and said, purely out of protest, out of support for the Nepalese workers and the human rights that were abused, I'm refusing to play in this tournament. If he was a sufficiently big enough player, like a Ronaldo, Right. First of all, it would be devastating commercially for FIFA, for the World Cup, for its reputation, everything else. Someone that has the ability to create headlines in the most obscure places around the world by making a protest. And I would have enormous respect because that to me is a legitimate sacrifice. Not coming out and saying something that means nothing because it's great PR. Actual sacrifice something that you give up to support people who need your support who need your voice david beckham you've got gary neville sitting here talking about you know uh morality and sports and proper governance meanwhile his closest friend is an ambassador for the qatari world cup david do you need the money do you you know is 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 there i mean is there no solidarity with the people that uh that need support from people like you. I mean, these are the people that are heading up UNICEF organizations. These are the people that are heading up all their charities. Yet as soon as someone writes them a check, all that gets forgotten. I mean, really? And, and, and people worship these people? These people shouldn't be worshiped. These people shouldn't, you know, these are people that have an exceptional talent with the ball at their feet. And right. they're not exceptional human beings by any stretch of imagination. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. And look, sacrifice, right? What does that word really mean? It means giving up something. And that is something that, look, so much of what we are seeing uh, with this performative activism, it just is not, there, there's no sacrifice whatsoever. There's People do not want to give up something that will end up hurting them uh, for, mm-hmm. for a larger cause. So I think that's, you know, that's really your answer right there and it's it's very unfortunate but uh but yeah i don't see any you know any people making a real stand against this and i think it's it's an absolute disgrace let me ask you about international football in general 
<clears throat> because uh, I'm trying to understand if my feelings on this um, are commensurate with most football fans or if it's part of being Irish where you have an indifference towards international football. Um, but uh, I'm looking at this UEFA Nations League and I will, especially when there's no club football, I'm going to watch just about any football. Yeah. Bless you. But I genuinely can't bring myself to care in the slightest about any of these games. I mean, I, I just, I think what UEFA did, they looked at how many gaps in the international calendar there was with friendlies that weren't being monetized by UEFA. They said, we could use, we could put a tournament here and replace these friendlies with something that allegedly means something. England got relegated, right? Um, we've, we've seen other major countries in, uh, underperform. Um, we've seen the likes of Hungary overperform. And I question whether um, a lot of these big international superstars have the same appetite for international football, given the saturation of football in the calendar and given how much yeah. continental football they're playing anyway. I understood it in the 80s and everything, bless you, mate. Um, yeah. Whenever you had a European Cup where it was a two-legged game where you could go out in the first leg before you had the Champions League and all this, then there was a wonderful, there was a wonderful balance between club football and international football, and I loved watching international football. I have to say, it's been a long time, and I've t I talked about my indifference towards the World Cup, but where I can really bring myself to care in the slightest about what's going on in international football, I, I, I honestly, it, it's something that holds, I will watch the World Cup out of interest, I will watch the Euros out of interest. Um, I still think, South American and African international football retains its passion and yep. those players love to play for their country and I certainly, you know, Copa America and everything is, is, is brilliant to watch for its passion for everything else. But the rest of it, man, I, I could take it or leave it. I couldn't care less. Yeah, and I think that one thing is, one thing that's worth considering is I think the saturation. You know, we've become so just so overexposed to so much football yeah. that at a certain point, you know, it just is not as special as it was before. I think that's definitely an issue. Yeah, it holds no intrigue. Exactly. It, it holds very little intrigue. And, um, and yeah, I think that with regards to the Nations League, yeah, it is a glorified friendly. Um, I'll admit, I, I, I watched the first, I watched uh, Portugal's two games, you know, because I cover mm -hmm. Portugal, but like apart from that, I had no desire whatsoever to watch England, Italy, England, Germany because, exactly. like you said, it's it's a glorified friendly. It's basically like the club football version of the, uh, I mean, it, the the international football version of the Community Shield. Mm -hmm. It just is not very, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's kind of. Um, I just have very little desire to watch Nations League matches. And look, you know, I, I think that it's almost it's almost similar to Copa America in, in many ways. I think that Copa America has lost some of its allure um, because of playing the Copa America, right, one every two years, one every three years. You know, I'm not really sure 
not even sure what it is because they play it so often now. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we saw that in 2021, a lot of people, a lot more people excited about the Euros than Copa America. Um, so yeah, it's it's oversaturation because at a certain point, when supply is in, is 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 becomes even more and and the demand remains the same. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've got oversaturation. So I, I definitely think that's, for me at least, that's definitely a similar issue um, with this Nations League. And yeah, I mean, I get that there's relegation, but like, have you ever seen any players upset or, you know, crying that their mm. team got relegated from the Nations League group? You know, and I, I know that um, Kevin De Bruyne and uh, Thibaut Courtois have both voice their opinions on the yeah. Nations League, but I'm sure that there are plenty of other European players um, who feel similarly. You know, I I mean, and and do, do fans of their teams, when they see them get a big victory in the Nations League, you know, how excited are they even? You know, I know Hungary must, that must be pretty big for Hungary sure. to go ahead of likes of what, Germany and England, but I mean, is is it really that big? Does anybody has anybody convinced themselves that this is a major tournament? Because right. I certainly have. Um, so look, is it better than pointless friendlies? I guess, but at the same time, they've they've really just, you know, it's that old saying, right? You're putting lipstick on a pig, yeah, um, and that's what it is. Well, I mean, you think about the end of the season, right? It was so long. And then these players have to go off and play UEFA Nations League at the end of the season, which meant that many of them got like a two-week break off. That's mm-hmm. ridiculous, eh? And this is where you're going to push not just big clubs, but big players into decisions. Are they going to be like, look, <clears throat> right. I need to take six weeks off at a minimum in the summer. That's what my body needs to recover. And that's a bare minimum. Right. And... Because obviously of the monetary gain, trying to saturate every you know talk about having a World Cup every two years and every single thing I look at regulatory bodies doing, governing bodies doing is looking at ways to get more football into the calendar. You Super League, all this nonsense for one sole purpose, profit. And I just wonder if you're heading for a situation with players where they're going to be like, look. How many more games do you want us to play? How many more games do you think we can play? I mean, you look at the fact that the league this year is truncated. All these games are going to have to be played. Clubs were compensated to, to of course, have a, a massive break in the middle of their season. But this is going to make, make the second half of next season really, really interesting. The amount of games that has to be played is outrageous. Players will get injured. You're yeah. going to have lots of different things happen that otherwise wouldn't happen in a normal season. And I just think, you know, there's a point where you push the human body too much. And yeah. I just feel that the people that make these decisions don't play the game. And I think what's going to happen, Zach, is they're going to devalue international football to the point where in the next five to ten years, you're going to have big players saying, I don't want to play international football it adds nothing to my commercial value it adds nothing to my image i'd like to play for my country but i'd also like time off and it's just too much yeah. and and i just feel that 
you know that that's you're, you're going to devalue a lot of these tournaments by asking players to play insane amount of games that can't be played and, and the pressure that's on big big players to play these games because of the commercial agreements that their national teams have I mean we need only look at the 98 World Cup final you know Ronaldo of course who knows what actually happened there but allegedly was made to play because of his relationship with Nike after having a, a seizure and 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 this, of course, is going to be talked about in Ronaldo's documentary. It's coming up. <clears throat> um, I think it's on the zone. But uh, this puts unbelievable pressure on players to play through mm. injury and what have you. We saw with David too, of course. Um, with two, of course, this weekend with, with the Dolphins and everything. It's just, it's, it's not healthy. Yeah. Yeah. And um, look, I, you know, one of the biggest surprises from the recent Portugal uh, round of games was Rafa Silva, a player who's uh, 29 years of age, playing some of his best football for Benfica, decided to retire from international football after receiving a call-up. Okay? Uh, Rafa, a player who's gotten around 30 uh, international appearances for Portugal, has won the Euros, won the Nations League, um, has had a decent career, but has really been used as more of a bench warmer, you know, coming off the bench uh, for Portugal. And I think he just came to a decision that, you know what, I'm, I'm 29. I've got a few more years left in my career. And I just think with, with, with all the travel that it goes into it, and even it's not even that much travel in Rafa's case because uh, he, he's, he's one of the few players uh, in the Celestial, who actually plays for a Portuguese team. But with all that wear and tear, going from place to place, and, you know, and also training for a team, even if you don't play uh, for Portugal, you're still training for two weeks, and maybe you don't come mm -hmm. back um, the same way, right? We've seen that with so many, you know, not just in terms of the FIFA virus, which obviously so many players getting injured on international break, but players who play two weeks for, for their country, come back tired, don't have the same performances as before. And, uh, and, and yeah, so I do think that we will be starting to see more players like Rafa Silva, like retiring um, while they are still at the peak of their careers and retiring from international football and, uh, and to, to try to conserve that because at the end of the day, international football does not really make you much money and club football does. So as you mentioned, we are, um, we are pushing these players to a breaking point. Uh, and, and more and more players are going to have to uh, make that decision. Um, so I think, I think definitely we'll see more and more players uh, retiring at an early age from international football to try to conserve their energy and skill for uh, club football. Yeah, and it seems to be that for a lot of players, club football, I think it all depends the country you're from, but club football actually seems to mean more to a lot of them. Um, right. But, uh, all right, man, we'll go ahead and leave it there. Thanks, as always, for uh, your time. Thanks to all of you for downloading the show, and uh, we'll be back next week. Take it easy, Zach. Awesome. Thanks, man. Bye.